Please keep your hymn books before you as we want to turn to the Canons of Dort, Second Hit of Doctrine, Articles 1 through 6, page 903 in the back of the Trinity. Nine hundred and three. And then we're going to open the Word of God to Colossians one, reading the verses one to twenty three and focusing primarily on twenty one to twenty three. Second main point of doctrine, Article one, the punishment which God's justice requires. God is not only supremely merciful, but also supremely just. His justice requires, as he has revealed himself in the word, that the sins we have committed against his infinite majesty be punished with both temporal and eternal punishments of soul as well as body. We cannot escape these punishments unless satisfaction is given to God's Justice, Article 2. Since, however, we ourselves cannot give this satisfaction or deliver ourselves from God's anger, God in his boundless mercy has given us as a guarantee his only begotten Son, who was made to be sin and a curse for us in our place on the cross in order that he might give satisfaction for us. Article 3. This death of God's Son is the only and entirely complete sacrifice and satisfaction for sins. It is of infinite value and worth, more than sufficient to atone for the sins of the whole world. Article 4. This death is of such great value and worth for the reasons that the person who suffered it is, as was necessary to be our Savior, not only a true and perfectly holy man, but also the only begotten Son of God of the same eternal and infinite essence with the Father and the Holy Spirit. Another reason is that this death was accompanied by the experience of God's anger and curse, which we, by our sins, had fully deserved. Article 5. Moreover, it is the promise of the gospel that whoever believes in Christ crucified shall not perish, but have eternal life. This promise together with the command to repent and believe, ought to be announced and declared without differentiation or discrimination to all nations and people to whom God, in his good pleasure, sends the gospel. Article 6. However, that many who have been called through the gospel do not repent or believe in Christ, but perish in unbelief, is not because the sacrifice of Christ offered on the cross is deficient or insufficient, but because they themselves are at fault. And now we'll turn to the Word of God. Colossians 1. Colossians 1, reading the verses 1 to 23, and focusing on 21 to 23. Colossians 1 and verse 1. Let us hear the word of the Lord. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God and Timothy, our brother, 
to the saints and faithful brethren in Christ who are in Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We give thanks to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of your love for all the saints, because of the hope which is laid up for you in heaven, of which you heard before in the word of the truth of the gospel, which has come to you as it is also in all the world, and is bringing forth fruit as it is also among you since the day you heard and knew the grace of God in truth, as you also learned from Epaphras, our dear fellow servant, who is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf, who also declared to us your love in the Spirit. For this reason, we also, since the day we heard it, do not cease to pray for you and to ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all wisdom and spiritual understanding, that you may walk worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing Him, being fruitful in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God, strengthened with all might, according to His glorious power, for all patience and long-suffering with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in the light. He has delivered us from the powers of darkness and conveyed us into the kingdom of the Son of His love, in whom we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by Him all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created through Him and for Him. And He is before all things, and in Him all things consist. And he is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he may have the preeminence. For it pleased the Father that in him all the fullness should dwell, and by him to reconcile all things to himself, by him, whether things on earth or things in heaven, having made peace through the blood of his cross. And here begins our text at verse 21. And you who once were alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now he has reconciled in the body of his flesh through death to present you holy and blameless and above reproach in his sight, if indeed you continue in the faith, grounded and steadfast, and are not moved away from the hope of the gospel which you heard, which was preached to every creature under heaven, of which I, Paul, became a minister. So far, the reading of God's holy word. We've all seen them, the before and after pictures. This is what the house looked like before the renovations. Peeling paint, outdated windows, crooked eaves troughs. And this is what it looked after, like after the changes were made. Bright, clean, and straight. This is what the car looked like before the bodywork was done. Faded color, rust spots, missing trim. And this is what it looked like after the repairs. Shiny, spotless, no rust or dents. 
This is what the man looked like before his diet. Flabby, clumsy, unkempt. And this is what he looked like after joining the weight loss program. Tram, healthy, muscular, athletic. I knew a person who lost so much weight that if her friends had not seen her in the past year, they would have barely recognized her. The change was so drastic. Well, congregation, in the words of our text, the Apostle Paul provides us with a before and after picture of what the Colossians had been spiritually and what they had become by the death of Christ. And in these verses, he reminds us of the immense blessings of reconciliation, the restoration of a right relationship with God. As we consider verses 21 to 23, I want us to ponder four things. Number one, the need of reconciliation. Number two, the means of reconciliation. Number three, the evidence of reconciliation. And number four, the proclamation of reconciliation. To begin with, why is reconciliation necessary? Well, look with me, please, in your Bibles to verse 21. And you who once were alienated or estranged from God and enemies in your mind by wicked works. Why is reconciliation necessary? Because by nature, we are alienated from God and enemies of God. This was once true of the Colossians, and it was once true of you. In Genesis 2, Adam and Eve were friends of God. They walked with him in the garden and enjoyed wonderful fellowship. There was complete harmony between Adam and Eve and their maker. But in Genesis 3, everything changed. Tragically, they heeded the voice of the devil, took from the forbidden tree. There was an instantaneous change in the relationship with God. When they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, they were afraid and hid themselves from his presence among the trees of the garden. Adam's disobedience led to what? Verse 21. Alienation and estrangement from God. And ever since that dreadful day, all his descendants have been alienated and estranged from God. And more than that, instead of being friends of God, Adam and his descendants became, verse 21, enemies of God. Drawing from Scripture, the Canons of Dort, second hit of doctrine, Article 1 says... God is supremely just. And His justice requires that our sins committed against His infinite majesty be punished with both temporal and eternal punishments, both in body and soul, which we cannot escape. Ever since the sin of Adam, the human race has tried to avoid God, just as a thief tries to avoid the presence of a just judge. Sinners are as eager to be in the presence of God as a murderer is eager to be in the presence of a righteous, good, and faithful judge. By nature, we are antagonistic to God. Verse 21 says we are enemies in our minds. 
Verse 21 is not merely describing an attitude of indifference to God. It describes a deep-rooted and bitter enmity towards God. In our hearts, we know that He is just. We know that His justice requires that our sin be punished. We know that it requires eternal punishment of body and soul. And we know that we cannot escape. And yet, that is precisely what we attempt to do. Avoid Him, stay clear of Him, and ultimately we hope to escape Him. With respect to God, we are not merely apathetic, we are hostile in mind, says the Apostle. Enemies in your mind, you see that there in verse 21, or hostile in mind, not only means that we think corrupt thoughts, but that we also live corrupt lives. Thoughts and actions are intertwined. One writer aptly said, Chronic sinful behavior twists the mind so that it becomes even more at enmity with God, and the twisted mind hurdles us into ever greater depravity. The depraved mind then commends evil behavior as good or natural or as an alternative lifestyle. Sinful behavior twists the mind, and the twisted mind generates and rationalizes sinful behavior. The hostile mind resents his commandments and loves darkness rather than light. And as the prophet Isaiah said, your iniquities have separated you from your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he will not hear. Congregation, by nature, you would be completely estranged from God, detached from Him because of sin. He would be your bitter opponent. As a son of fallen Adam, you would hate Him, defy His will, and resist His commands. As Paul said in Romans chapter 1, by nature you suppress the truth in unrighteousness, and by nature you are children of wrath, Ephesians 2.3. Being alienated from God and enemies, you deserve not only temporal but also eternal punishments of body and soul. Our sins should be punished not only in this age but also in the age to come. There are those who try to silence their conscience and dispel their fear by denying the existence of God. Don't worry about eternal punishment, because God doesn't exist. He's just as real as Santa Claus and the Tooth Fairy. Nothing to worry about. There is no God. Then there are others who acknowledge his existence, but insist that his mercy overrules his justice. There are those who say, surely God would not punish someone eternally. Being a God of mercy, he will not execute judgment. Would a God of mercy condemn millions to eternal anguish and desolation? Of course not. A God of mercy would not assign anyone to hell. Hellfire and brimstone preaching is contrary to its character, so it is argued. But congregation, what does the Bible say? Does the Bible say there is no hell? Does the Bible say that those who are alienated from God and enemies will not be punished eternally? 
Yes, God is certainly merciful. Thankfully, His mercy is loudly and frequently proclaimed on the pages of Scripture. But He is also just. And God's mercy cannot overrule His justice. God's mercy cannot overrule His justice. God's own moral justice demands that He act in accordance with the righteous laws that He sovereignly established. Fallen sinners might be willing to believe the mercy of God, but they are most reluctant to believe the justice of God. Why? Because those who are guilty are inclined to flee from justice. Brothers and sisters, if God did not punish His enemies, He would not be a good God. What do you think of an earthly judge who allows the guilty to go unpunished? Is he a good judge? When you hear a story on the news about a man who brutally assaulted a child so that the child will carry physical and emotional scars for life, yet despite the man's indisputable guilt, the judge allows him to walk out of the courtroom a free man. What do you think of a judge like that? Do you commend him for his mercy? Do you say, what a good judge? Or do you say, that judge is pathetic. He should be removed from the bench. What a terrible, glaring breach of justice. You see, a good God, a good judge, a good judge does not allow the guilty to go unpunished. He ensures that justice is upheld and that the appropriate punishment is administered. And so it is with God. Exodus 34 says, The Lord will by no means clear the guilty. Those who are alienated from God and enemies of God will not escape His just judgment. God's perfection of moral justice will not permit Him to let sin go unpunished. So that's point number one, the need of reconciliation. By virtue of the fall of Adam, all people everywhere are by nature antagonistic to God and His truth. That's the before picture of the Colossians. Secondly, we go on to the means of reconciliation. The means. Look with me please in your Bibles to verse 21b and 22. 21b and 22. Yet now he has reconciled in the body of his flesh through death to present you holy and blameless and above reproach in his sight. That is free from accusation. What's the means of reconciliation? Yet now he has reconciled in the body of his flesh, that is by Christ's physical body, through death. Reconciliation is a very important word in Scripture. It summarizes the Christian gospel. It's at the very heart of the gospel. When the Bible talks about reconciliation, it refers to the restoration of a right relationship between God and man. To be reconciled is to be at peace. It means that those who were once alienated from God are alienated no more. Those who were enemies are enemies no more. Alienation is replaced by fellowship, hostility by goodwill, and opposition is replaced by peace. 
congregation, if you're out of favor with another human being, if you've had a falling out with someone, either you or the other person can take the initiative to restore the relationship, right? You can go to that person, or that person can come to you. If you are the offended one, or if you have caused the, the breach, either way, you could take the initiative to make things right, or he can take the initiative. However, when it comes to reconciliation with God, it is God who takes the initiative. The healing of the breach which man's sin has made is God's work. How did God heal the breach and turn enmity into friendship? Well, verse 22 says, in the body of his flesh through death, or by Christ's physical body through his death. By referring to Christ's physical body, Paul is reminding us that the only begotten Son of God, who is of the same eternal and infinite essence with the Father and the Holy Spirit, took on human flesh and fully identified with sinful humanity. He became truly human. He shared our life, faced our temptations, experienced our pain, and endured our challenges. And through it all, in his human body, he remained sinless and fully satisfied the demands of the law. Then finally, he faced the reality of death. And he died not just any death. The end of verse 20 reminds us that he died the accursed death of the cross. When Jesus' blood was shed on the cross, and when he died under God's curse, he was there as our substitute. He took the place of sinners and died to pay the penalty for the sin of all his people. He died as a man for men. Through his death, God's wrath was propitiated. The breach between God and his people was healed and lasting peace was achieved. The prodigal can return to his home from which he had been estranged. He has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death. The Canons of Dort, second hit of doctrine, Article 2, reads as follows. Listen. Since, however, we ourselves cannot give this satisfaction to the justice of God or deliver ourselves from God's anger, God, in his boundless mercy, has given us a guarantee, his only, as a guarantee, his only begotten Son, who was made to be sin and a curse for us in our place on the cross in order that he might give satisfaction to divine justice for us. Isn't that well stated? Isn't that well stated? Doesn't it nicely summarize the means of reconciliation? We can't do it. We can't deliver ourselves from the anger of God. Therefore, God gave us His only begotten Son who did for us what we couldn't do ourselves. He was made to be sin. He became a curse for us and in our place, and He made complete satisfaction to divine justice. The result? Reconciliation. 
reconciliation. And notice from our text the wonderful blessings for the people of God. Look again at verse 21b and 22. Yet now he has reconciled, verse 22, in the body of his flesh through death. Now notice the blessings in the remainder of the sentence. To present you holy and blameless and above reproach in his sight. Through faith of the death of Jesus, you are presented before the divine judge as holy, blameless, without blemish, and free from accusation. Instead of filthy, guilty sinners, you, the reconciled Christian, are now presented above reproach, stain, or fault. What an amazing contrast this there is between the before and after pictures. Verse 21 presents a picture of alienation and hostility, but verse 22 paints a new picture of reconciliation and acceptance. Before and after. If you've trusted Jesus Christ, God looks upon you and sees you to be as holy as his very own son. The words there, blameless or without blemish in verse 22 are used in the Old Testament to speak of sacrificial animals. You remember that. Animals offered to God had to be unblemished, right? But the same expression is used in the New Testament to describe... Christ. He was the blameless lamb without blemish. And now here in verse 22, it is said of believers, he will present you blameless without blemish. And according to verse 22, no one can bring a charge against you. Those whom Christ has reconciled are free from accusation, above reproach. Satan may do his utmost, but his charges cannot stick. Brothers and sisters, listen, if any of you are discouraged this afternoon, for whatever reason, consider this. You who by nature are opposed to God and everything that is of God. You who by nature disobey the law and disbelieve the gospel. You who would dethrone God, repeal His laws, and cancel His judgment if you could. You who are born a rebel against your Maker. You are through the death of Christ presented holy, blameless, without blemish, and free from accusation in His presence. Doesn't that lift your discouraged spirit? Doesn't that lift your discouraged spirit? The best news in all the world is that your alienation from God is over and you are reconciled to the judge of the universe. So having considered the need of reconciliation and the means of reconciliation, we want to go on to the evidence of reconciliation, the evidence. Please notice what Paul says in verse 23. If indeed you continue in the faith, grounded and steadfast, and are not moved away from the hope of the gospel which you heard... 
Dear friends, one of the sobering truths of Scripture is that some who profess to be reconciled are not reconciled. Some who profess to be holy without blemish and free from accusation are in fact unholy, blemished, and blameworthy. Article 3 of the Canons correctly says that this death of God's Son is the only and entirely complete sacrifice and, and satisfaction for sins. It is of infinite value and worth, more than sufficient to atone for the sins of the whole world. However, while Jesus' death is of sufficient value to pay for the sins of the whole world, while his death is more than enough to pay for all the sins of all men, the fact is not everyone genuinely embraces the saving gospel. Scripture provides ample illustrations of those who confessed with their lips, but not with their heart. Consequently, while they profess to be Christians, they are not truly saved and not actually reconciled. In 2 Timothy chapter 4, Paul spoke of a man named Demas, who had been a fellow laborer. At one time, he appeared to be a man of spiritual substance. He provided great assistance to the apostle. But eventually, he deserted him because he loved this present world. Love for the world caused him to abandon the apostle and his work. Sadly, sometimes that happens today as well. There are those who have confessed the hope of the gospel with their mouth, but they are eventually lured away by the temptations and pleasures of the world, and it becomes evident that the confession made with their lips did not arise from a renewed heart. Scripture reveals the sad fact that there are those who are like the rocky soil in Jesus' parable. Jesus said, Behold, a sower went out to sow. And as he sowed, some fell on stony places where they did not have much earth, and they immediately sprang up. But when the sun was up, they were scorched, and because they had no root, they withered away. Jesus then went on to say, He who received the seed on stony places, this is he who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy, yet he has no root but endures only for a while. For when tribulation or persecution arises because of the word, immediately he stumbles. Sadly, there are those like Demas and Judas who appear to be the real deal, the genuine article, but eventually they stumble. Demas has forsaken me, having loved this present world. In Matthew 7, Jesus warned, Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, and done many wonders in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. There are those who labor in the name of Christ, and yet they will be lost on the final day. They will hear those terrifying words from the lips of Jesus, depart from me, depart from me. Therefore, in light of the fact that not all who profess to be reconciled are in fact reconciled, 
The words of our text, verse 23, remind us of some of the marks of a genuine Christian. Those who are truly holy in his sight, blameless, without blemish, above reproach, free from accusation, verse 22, are those who continue in the faith, grounded and steadfast, and are not moved away from the hope of the gospel, verse 23. Those who are truly reconciled through the death of Christ do not confess faith in Him today and abandon that confession next month or next year. They continue in the faith. In John chapter 8, verse 31, Jesus said, If you abide in my word, you are my disciples indeed. And the Apostle John said in 1 John 2, verse 19, They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have what? Continued with us. Continued. You see, brothers and sisters, there are those, those who are truly friends of God, those who are truly friends of God, reconciled by the death of Christ, are those who persevere. Or perhaps it is better to say they are those who are preserved. They continue not merely in their own strength, but by the enabling grace of God. Through the work of the indwelling Spirit, they are grounded and steadfast, or established and firm, not moved away from the hope of the gospel. Yes, while we are in this life, genuine Christians can and do sin and sometimes backslide. We hope to look at that in another message. But we don't remain in a state of sin and we don't abandon the faith. False teachers and heretics do not move us from the hope held out in the gospel. Persecution, suffering, disappointments, love of the world, love of forbidden pleasures, none of these things move us from the hope of the gospel. By the grace of the indwelling Spirit, we continue to say with the hymn writer, My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. On Christ, the solid rock I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. Those who were once enemies of God, those who were once estranged from Him, They never want to return to their former state of darkness, emptiness, and spiritual rebellion. By the power of the Holy Spirit, we continue in the faith, grounded and steadfast, not moved from the hope held out in the gospel. The evidence of reconciliation is the Spirit-induced desire and determination to continue, 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 continue in the faith. So we have seen from these verses, number one, the need of reconciliation, number two, the means of reconciliation, and number three, the evidence of reconciliation. We conclude with number four, the proclamation of reconciliation. Proclamation. Go with me to the middle of verse 23. The middle of verse 23. The hope. See those words there in the middle? The hope of the gospel which you heard which was preached to every creature under heaven, of which I, Paul, became a minister. 
How are the Colossian believers rescued from danger, darkness, and eternal death? How do they escape everlasting punishment of body and soul? They were delivered through the proclamation of the gospel from the mouth of God's servant. The good news that he proclaimed to all without discrimination. The gospel that he proclaimed to every creature under heaven. I have no doubt that the Apostle Paul would have heartily concurred with Article 5 of the Canons of Dort where it says, It is the promise of the gospel that whoever believes in Christ crucified shall not perish but have eternal life. This promise, together with the command to repent and believe, ought to be announced and declared without differentiation or discrimination to all nations and people to whom God in his good pleasure sends the gospel. For Paul, the passion of his life was to obey the parting command of Christ to preach the gospel to every creature. It wasn't only for Jews, or only for the upper class, or only for men, or only for the morally upright, or only for the free, or or only for the intellectual crowd. No, no. The gospel was for both Jews and Gentiles, both rich and poor, both men and women, both moral and self-indulgent, both free and slave, both scholar and peasant. The gospel is the power of God unto salvation for everyone who believes. It is the good news that there is hope for sinners, yes, also the worst of sinners. Paul proclaimed the gospel to harlots, prodigals, idolaters, drunkards, as well as pagan philosophers, scholars, and Jewish theologians. He told them all basically the same message, that in Adam they were alienated from God and enemies because of their darkened hearts, twisted minds, and evil behavior. But he also told them that whoever believes in Christ crucified shall not perish but have eternal life. Through repentance and faith, they could be reconciled and presented to God holy, without blemish, and free from accusation. Congregation, isn't that also the message that we have for our nation and for the world today? To those who are weary and heavy laden, you can say there is rest through repentance and faith in Christ. To those who suffer under the weight of guilt, you can say the burden is removed as you repent and believe in Jesus. To those who feel the pain of an accusing conscience, you can say the accusing voice can be silenced as you receive by faith the imputed righteousness of Christ. To those who fear the justice of God, you can say there is hope through the perfect satisfaction of Christ. He was made to be sin and a curse for us in our place that he might make satisfaction to divine justice on our behalf. And to those who fear death and the grave, you can say there is life and peace through his resurrection. Brothers and sisters, 
The work that God gave to the Apostle Paul is now the ongoing responsibility of the church. The promise of the gospel, together with the command to repent and believe, ought to be announced and declared without differentiation or discrimination to all nations and people. We don't have to concern ourselves with the question of who is elect and who is not elect. We are simply called to proclaim to all people the promise of the gospel and the command to repent and believe. And the Spirit of God will use that message to draw His chosen ones to Himself. There are those who argue that if it's true that Christ died only for the elect, if it is true that He laid down His life only for the sheep, then there's no use in preaching the gospel to all. What's the point in preaching to those who have no opportunity of sharing in the benefits of Christ's death? But the Apostle Paul, who strongly taught the doctrine of election, did not draw that conclusion at all. He did not believe that the preaching of the gospel should be limited to the elect only. Since the identity of the elect is not revealed to us, we are to bring the gospel to all. We are to proclaim, whoever believes in Christ crucified shall not perish, but have everlasting life. And it is through the preaching of that gospel that the identity of the elect becomes apparent. As Paul proclaimed the gospel to all, to every creature under heaven, verse 23. There were those in the city of Colossae whose hearts and minds were opened by the Spirit so that they embraced the promise and they obeyed the command to repent and believe. As Paul proclaimed the message of reconciliation through the death of Christ, the elect became apparent. Now, in verse 23, when Paul said that this gospel had been preached to every creature under heaven, he wasn't suggesting that the gospel had reached all the peoples of the earth. That was certainly not yet the case. He was simply saying that when the gospel was preached, there were no boundaries. The message was for those of every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. The gospel's not just for one group, but for the world. As a servant of Christ, he preached to everyone, everywhere. So congregation, as we close this afternoon, I realize, I realize that there could be someone in our midst who has not yet embraced the promise of the gospel, nor obeyed the command to repent and believe. I say to such a one, if you continue in your sin, you will perish in unbelief. And you will have no one else to blame but yourself. You will face eternal estrangement, misery, and wrath. But if you embrace the promise and obey the command, you shall not perish but have eternal life. For those of you who are reconciled through the death of Christ, I hope that the, the before and after picture is clear in your own life. This is what you once were. This is what you are now. You used to be an enemy of God. Now you are his friend. Reconciled. 
And knowing how God so graciously brought you from this picture of death to this picture of life, will you not share the message of reconciliation with others? Will you not speak to others of the promise of the gospel and the call to repent and believe? Will you not invite people to this church so that they can hear the proclamation of reconciliation? God has given His church a task to do. May the wonder and glory of the gospel motivate us to be faithful, pleading with sinners. Be reconciled to God. Be reconciled to God. Let us pray. Lord, your word has revealed to us once again our great need. Being estranged from you by nature, by virtue of our union with Adam. Being enemies. Lord, we recognize our desperate need of reconciliation. We praise you for the means that you have provided that we can stand in your holy presence. We thank you that our Lord Jesus came, stood in our place, and took our punishment. It has provided the means by which we may not only stand in your holy presence, but we may also enjoy your holy presence. That through faith in Jesus, we are as righteous as he is. Lord, we pray that we might display in our lives the evidence of reconciliation. That we would continue in the faith steadfast. And that we would have the desire to proclaim the message of reconciliation. Give us some of the zeal that you gave to the apostle. Give us some of the zeal, Lord, that he displayed as he went from town to town, from village to village, as he engaged old and young, men and women, as he, as he dialogued with those who were scholars and those who were peasants, Lord, as he had such a passion to see others reconciled to the living God, may we have some of that today as well. May we invite people, Lord, to come and hear the message of reconciliation within the church as well. And so, Lord, that we may experience the joy of others coming to faith and experiencing the joy, Lord, of, of your perfect justice being satisfied in Jesus Christ. So, Lord, would you work in us and would you work through us Will you bless the message as it goes forth today, even right here through your people in this community? Hear us, we pray. We thank you for that wonderful gift of reconciliation. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.